Okay. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone requiring of the Lord will go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance of their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. In verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favour with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your way so that I may know you and continue to find favour with you. Remember that the nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will lift you, I will put you on a cliff in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Okay, I'll just go down to verse 7 on 34. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first one, and I will write on them the words, um, on the words, sorry, that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up to Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me, there on top of the mountain. No one will, is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may gaze on the front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Okay, just skip across to chapter 34. Um, verse 29, and we'll go to 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called them, 
So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Let's pray before we get started. The great God and Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that as we consider your word, that uh, you would grant us your spirit. Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts that believe and lives that obey your word to us. Do that for us, we pray, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, imagine you're having a conversation with someone about God and they ask you, what's God like? How would you answer that question? It's an important question, I think, because the answer has all sorts of implications. It affects how we think about God and in turn it affects how we respond and relate to God. That's true on a human level, what someone's like affects how we relate to them. Like if you know your dad's got a short fuse and he tends to fly off the handle, then you learn to tread gently when he's around. Or if you've got a teacher who's a bit of a soft touch, you know you can muck up and get away with it a bit. What's also true on a human level is that we can't just make up our own version of what someone's like. We need them to tell us what they're like and better yet, show us what they're like. That might seem like an obvious thing to say, but if that's true on a human level, then it makes sense that that's true when it comes to God as well. We can't make up our own ideas about what God's like. We need him to tell us and we need him to show us. The atheist Richard Dawkins famously wrote of God in his book, uh, The God Delusion, that the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Is that what God's like? Well, the passage of Exodus we're looking at today, it both it kind of asks that question and answers that question for us. We get this kind of progressive unfolding of what God is like. And if this section of the story were a play, uh, it might be split into three acts. Act one, the tent. Act two, the mountain. And act three, the face. That's how we're kind of going to break it up this morning. So act one, the tent. Uh, We picked up our text in verse 7 to 10 of chapter 33, where we got this description of a place called the Tent of Meeting. Uh, If you remember in previous chapters, Moses had been given these detailed instructions to build a place called the Tabernacle so the Israelites could enjoy having the privilege of God's presence right there with them in the camp. Uh, But what we saw last week is that they shot themselves in the foot with the golden calves and so the building plans are on halt because it's no longer clear whether God's presence 
is actually going to go with them. But in the meantime, Moses would pitch this tent outside the camp where he would go and meet with God and you read of this kind of solemn procession where uh, Moses would go out to the tent and all the people kind of stood at the front of their tents and they worshipped as they watched the presence of God come down and it was in there that Moses would talk with God, we read, face to face as one speaks to a friend. And you can imagine the people standing there going, what are they talking about in there? Well, we get to eavesdrop on this particular conversation and it's decision time. Uh, Decision time in the tent. Is God going to go with the Israelites or not? Which kind of begs the question, doesn't it? What kind of God are we dealing with here? What's God like? Well, Moses goes in to talk with God and he pleads with him. He says in verse 15 and 16, God, please don't send us away from here, that is Mount Sinai, unless you're going to go with us. How will anyone else know that you're pleased with us unless you go with us? What else is going to set us apart from all the other people on the earth? It's an astonishing request because going backwards again at the start of chapter 33, we didn't read it this morning, but God has already said that he's going to give the Israelites the promised land. He had promised them that he's going to send an angel to kind of drive out all their enemies and they were going to have the land. But Moses pleads with God and he said, no, God, that's not enough. We need you too. We need your presence. Moses recognised something that we would all do well to recognise and that is that God's presence is more important than his presence. His presence with a C-E is more important than his presence with a T-S. The presence of God is so much more vital than the good gifts he gives. And maybe in our comfy Western lives, we're so surrounded by the good gifts that God gives us. Homes, cars, running water, electricity, peace, security, freedom. So surrounded by these good gifts that we can get somehow lulled into thinking that we don't need God, we don't need the presence of God in our life. But it gets deeper. We get sucked into this trap of thinking that if we had more material stuff, then we'd be satisfied. And it's worth thinking, what is it that you kind of want more of? What keeps you up at night? Maybe it's more money, Paying the mortgage down, a nicer house, a second house, just that little bit more security and everything would be okay. Maybe it's relationships, maybe if all the people around you were happy with you and liked you, then you'd be okay. Or just a bit more comfort, less work, more holidays. But think about those magazines, Women's Weekly or whatever. The pages of those magazines are full of people who have more wealth and comfort than they can poke a stick at and they're miserable. Their lives are falling apart. What good is any of that stuff if you don't have God? God himself 
is the most precious gift of all, his presence in your life to guide and comfort and sustain. But here's the problem. The thing that we need the most, God's presence in our life, is the thing that we're actually powerless to get for ourselves. There's nothing we can do to kind of earn or buy the privilege of God's presence. And if we're honest, why should God go with us? Have any of us really deserved that? No, we need someone to act on our behalf. In the same way that the Israelites needed Moses to step into the tent and plead with God, we need someone to plead for us. And actually, as I was thinking about that this week, it was these words that came to mind, the hymn, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Right now, right actually as I'm speaking right now, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father pleading on our behalf. Can you imagine eavesdropping on that conversation? Well, God granted his presence to the Israelites on behalf of Moses' plea. He said to Moses in verse 17, I will do the very thing that you ask. Which goes some way to answering the question of what God's like, doesn't it? What's God like? A metaphor's never perfect, of course, but God's a bit like a husband who chooses to stay faithful to his new wife after she's just cheated on him with another bloke. Well within his rights to walk away from the marriage, but he stays faithful, he sticks with her. And God's a bit like that loving and faithful husband. What we learn in the tent is that God is a God who sticks by his people, not because they deserve it, but because he's faithful and because he listened to the plea of Moses on behalf of the Israelites and he listens to the plea of Christ on our behalf. That's what we learn in the tent. Now let's head up the mountain. In verse 18 of chapter 33, Moses said to God, now show me your glory, which is a bold thing to ask, right? But it's probably motivated by Moses wanting some kind of added assurance that God would do what he said he would do. But be careful what you wish for, Moses. God says to him, no one can see me and live. I'm holy, you're a sinner. If you see me, you'll die. But God doesn't leave it at that. He still makes a way for Moses to experience his glory. He says in verse 19 that Moses won't be able to see his face, but what God will do is kind of, he'll cause all his goodness to pass in front of Moses and proclaim his name as he goes past. And while he goes past, he's going to pick Moses up and put him in the cleft in the rock and cover him with his hand so Moses can't see him. He'll only see his back parts. Um, and the mechanics of it, they're all quite interesting. But anyway, the next morning, Moses goes up the mountain and God comes down in a cloud and passes in front of him proclaiming his name. Listen to this. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. 
I don't know that there's anywhere in the Bible where you get a fuller and richer description of who God is. But it's interesting. God promised that he would show Moses his glory. And he did that by speaking about himself in words. And you've got to ask, is that an anticlimax? I think we can be a bit like Moses sometimes and crave this kind of more sensory experience of God. In a sense, we say to God, show me your glory. I want to see you. I want to hear your voice. We want this kind of unmistakable, felt experience of God and his glory. But God's glory isn't something that can be seen. Now, God's glory is revealed to us. It's very much tied up in his attributes, his character, who he is. And those things are described using plain old ordinary words. Which actually, in itself, is extraordinary. Just the fact that we have a God who can be known, a God who reveals himself to us. He doesn't leave us guessing about what he's like. No, he tells us what he's like, makes himself known using words. And that's a mercy, isn't it? What's God like? Let him tell you what he's like. He's compassionate. Not indifferent or unconcerned or somehow far off. No, he cares about this world, cares about the people in it, cares about you. I wonder if you can remember a time when you felt compassion or someone showed you compassion and how that felt. You know when you're having like a really bad mental health day and the thing that makes all the difference sometimes can just be like the kindness of other people. A friend giving you a call or just popping in to have a cuppa and listen. Sometimes something as simple as like a waitress in a cafe giving you a smile and a look that says... I can see something's going on and I understand. Those little things are expressions of compassion. And compassionate is the first word that God uses here to describe himself. What's God like? He's gracious. Definition of grace being unmerited favour, receiving what you haven't earned. Every breath you take any measure of health that you enjoy, your gifts and abilities, your home, your family, your children, your food, your clothes, all gracious gifts from a gracious God. And by far the most gracious gift of all, the gift of salvation. None of us have earned it or deserve it, but God is gracious. What's God like? He's slow to anger. He doesn't have a short fuse. He isn't peevish and impatient. I get so angry when someone doesn't know how to use a roundabout. It just sets me off straight away. But God's not like that. No, he's slow to anger. I spoke to a guy once who said, I could never come into church because as soon as I walked in the building, I'd catch on fire. He was saying it in jest, but he had this sense that God was somehow angry with him. But God tells us that he's slow to anger. He absorbs and he holds back and he restrains. He gives people the opportunity to turn back to him. What's God like? 
He's abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Think about that. It's easy to skip over because in modern churches we hear it so often, God is love. But some of you need to hear that this morning. Maybe you're in a job that you hate, a really tough marriage, just the grind of family life. Maybe you feel unlovable. You're sick to death of yourself. Well, please hear this. God is abounding in love and faithfulness for you. In the thick of it all, he's right there with you. He'll stick with you. Maybe you feel guilty and ashamed because of sin. We'll know and trust and come to the God who forgives. He washes sin away. He remembers it no more. He throws it as far as east is from west. It'd be nice to stop there, but there's a warning here as well. This same God of compassion and grace and love and faithfulness and forgiveness tells us in the very next breath that he will not leave the guilty unpunished. It kind of seems like a contradiction. You go, huh? But in another sense, it's really quite simple. You see, all those attributes of God, his compassion, his grace, his love, his faithfulness, his forgiveness of sin, they find their ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus came into our world full of compassion. You know, I love that verse, uh, Mark 4, I think it is, where it talks about Jesus looking out at the crowds like sheep without a shepherd and he had compassion on them. I love that. He came into our world full of compassion. He died on a cross, took on all the anger and wrath of God so that those things could be turned away from everyone who entrusts themselves to Jesus. But if you refuse to entrust yourself to him, if you reject God's free offer of grace and forgiveness, then you're exposed. You stand before God as guilty, liable to be punished. God won't be trifled with. As in, don't come and sit in church week after week and hear all about the grace and love and compassion of God and think, nah, not for me. I'd rather do my own thing. Don't do that. You leave yourself wide open. When I was at school, we had this home ec teacher and she was just super patient and gracious and kind to all her students. She treated us with grace. And what did a bunch of 14-year-old boys do with that grace? (laughs) I'm ashamed to say that we trampled all over it. We mucked up something shocking until eventually the inevitable happened and she lost her patience. She kept us all back after school, got the principal involved and she gave us a talking to. I'll never forget, her name was Mrs. Treasure. Mrs. Treasure, she said to us, You mistake my kindness for weakness. You mistake my kindness for weakness. Friends, please don't mistake God's kindness for weakness. He is slow to anger, but he won't let you trample all over his grace forever. And you don't want the day to come where you run out of time to receive the grace 
and forgiveness of God offered in Jesus Christ. Well, God revealed his glory to Moses by speaking about himself in words, but he goes on to back those words up with action. This happened in verses 8 to 28, which we didn't read, but God promised to do great things for the Israelites. You might like to read the verses uh, at home. Um, And he gives Moses these 10 rules, which if you read them, they seem strange, but they're kind of like a sampling of the really detailed laws that were given in chapters 20 through 23. Uh, And those detailed laws are like an elaboration of the Ten Commandments. So it's kind of like God is giving the Ten Commandments again, the conditions of the covenant, and Moses writes them down. And what's happened is that God has renewed the covenant. He's backed up his words with action. He's proved his compassion and grace and love and faithfulness. He's proved that he's slow to anger. And he hasn't just said that he forgives, he has forgiven He's done all that by wiping the slate clean and giving the Israelites a fresh start. Up on the mountain, God revealed his glory to Moses by speaking about himself in words and he backed up those words with action. Now it's time to come down from the mountain and have a look at Moses' face. Moses came down from the mountain after 40 days and 40 nights without eating, probably starving, uh, maybe hoping someone would bring him some food, but actually no one came near him because they're terrified of his radiant face. Just how radiant, we don't know, but it's quite something, isn't it? Um, I kind of think, you know, when you're a kid and you go camping and you stick the torch in your mouth and it shines out of your cheeks, maybe that radiant, maybe as radiant as high beams on a dark Tasmanian night, um, you know, when people don't turn their high beams off. We don't know how radiant, but it's quite something. People were terrified of him. And really, his radiant face was... Uh, a confirmation that he'd experienced the presence and glory of God, and that glory was reflecting out of his face. And you'd think that this might be enough to keep the Israelites on track, but of course we know that wasn't the case. Despite the ministry of Moses and his shining face, despite the presence of God in their midst, despite knowing exactly what was required of them, the Israelites just seemed incapable of staying on the right foot with God. They needed something better. We need something better. Which is an idea that Paul picks up on in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7 and following. Let's go there now. Come with me to 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7, if you've got your Bibles with you. Paul compares the ministry of Moses and the Old Covenant with the ministry of the Spirit and the New Covenant. He says, uh, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7 and following, Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious... How much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? And then down to verse 18, it says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 
It's a complex passage with lots of glory and lots of comparisons, but really the take-home for us this morning is this. Uh, The glory of what took place on Mount Sinai, Moses with his shining face, has been trumped, trumped by the glory of what God has done through Christ and by his Spirit. If you've come to know God through Christ, then you've seen the glory of God in a better way than what Moses did. The Spirit of God now lives inside you. Unlike the laws given on Mount Sinai, they only brought death and condemnation, but the Spirit comes with life-giving power. And unlike the Israelites who couldn't look at God's glory being reflected in the face of Moses, you can look at God's glory shown through Christ. And as you do that, the glory of God pours into your heart and shines out not from your face, but from your life. What's God like? He's a God who reveals himself and his glory in Christ. And he's a God who transforms his followers into his image. This question, what is God like, is shown most fully in Christ, but also partly reflected through your life as you become like him. Your life can reflect the presence and the character and the glory of God. But here's the thing. That doesn't come by going out this week and kind of white-knuckling it and saying, all right, this week I need to be more compassionate and gracious, I need to be more faithful to people, I need to forgive the people around around me. No, it's as you contemplate the Lord's glory revealed in Christ that you're transformed by the Spirit. And what does that look like? Well, it's a life lived at the foot of the cross. Every day, going back to Jesus in repentance and faith, trusting in his death and resurrection, asking for his spirit, receiving his grace, knowing his love, resting in his faithfulness. It's that sort of life that begins to reflect the presence, the character, the glory of God. It's that sort of life that shows people what God's like. And I don't know if you know anyone like that, but it's a beautiful thing. You look at someone who uh, has known the faithfulness and the presence of God in their life, who's fully dependent on Christ. You look at their life and you go, isn't God good? that person's life becomes like a living billboard for the love and faithfulness of God. And might that be the case for all of us, both as individual people, as families, and as a community, that our lives, centred on Christ, would show the world around us what God is like. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you show us what you're like. Lord, you tell us what you're like. You're the God of compassion and grace. You're slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. You forgive wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet you will not leave the guilty unpunished. And Lord, you prove that to us. You prove all of that to us through the person and work of Jesus. 
Jesus proves your faithfulness. He proves your compassion and grace. He also proves that you won't leave the guilty unpunished. He took punishment for those who would entrust themselves to him. Lord, thank you for our saviour, Jesus. Lord, help us all to contemplate him and his glory and his work. Help our lives to be centred around Jesus Christ. And as they are, help us to begin to reflect something of your glory to the people around us. And show them something of what you're like. Lord, help us this week to do that, we pray. By your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen.